0: Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, your host for the discussion. And uh, before we get started, as always, I encourage you to like, share, and subscribe if you do like uh, or care to share or care to subscribe. Um, I really encourage the support and I, I welcome it. We've had some a flurry of new subscribers. I'm really grateful for everybody's support. I think these conversations are important, which is why we do them. But uh, at the same time, they're only important if people want to listen and, and find good value out of them. I am joined today by uh, Deborah McQuarrie, and I had a conversation with Deborah. I guess what, a couple of weeks ago now, and I was just so moved by the story. I've known Deborah for, gosh, a long time. I won't say how many years because that would date both of us. But uh, The story that she shared with me was outside of the uh, conversations we've had in the past. And to me, it was deeply moving. Um, So I want to kind of dive into that because it is very, very important at any time. But I I think it gains a little steam even in, I mean, especially in today's time with the pandemic and uh, a a whole range of mental health issues. Not to show the card early, but Deborah, I want to start off you, your background. You're a very, very accomplished person. And I want to start off by saying, uh, you know, first of all, I applaud that. Um, you have a, an undergraduate degree, a graduate degree. You have worked in uh, a variety of businesses. You have your own business. You have been, by any unit of measure, a, a very successful. Uh, person let's talk about your business background first, and then I want to dive into this really interesting talk you recently uh, you res- recently filmed
1: Thank you todd i'm delighted to be here um, i my business background was a very circuitous route because as you know, my two degrees that you mentioned are in music classical music so Um, I was uh, an instrumental music major in undergrad and a flute performance major in graduate school. And that did not prepare me to be a business executive, surprisingly. (laughs) Uh, But of course, I learned a lot that there were a lot of takeaways such as enormous discipline and practice and... um, setting goals and and setting very small goals, and then ultimately accumulating a lot of small goals, which ultimately then can be an ultimate goal. So all of those lessons, uh, literal lessons that I I took and gathered and learned have been a great platform for me. And when I was transitioning from music to business, I thought marketing was the perfect sort of bridge uh, In that space because it was creative and I didn't really know I never took any marketing courses so I had honestly frankly no idea what it was but I had an instinct and a a sense of it and um, and my path to get there was working for the March of Dimes in Colorado at the time and for three and a half years and what I learned advertising PR dealing with highly compensated professional uh, volunteers, um, event planning, uh, strategic planning, crisis management. I learned all of the the tools that were ultimately necessary for me as a young professional to make this transition. And and then very circuitously still, um, I got a securities license because I worked for a small oil and gas company where my, my boss was, a crook, (laughs) literally disappeared in the middle of the night um, and left all kinds of investors um, along the side of the road. So, so there were, you know, there were opportunities for me to just gather additional, an additional framework. And what it really taught me all of that sort of on the job learning was ultimately the You know, you make ethical and moral decisions every single step of your way as a as a professional. And there are all these opportunities, some obvious, some less, less obvious. And I. That's where I learned it all. That's where I sort of got my ethical, moral framework was having being confronted by a series of decisions that had to be made that day. And that and was a very interesting foundation for ultimately now my 30 plus year career in law, where I started as the, um, the first director of marketing at a large law firm in the Southwest to now 15 and a half years later being the founder and CEO of my own company that serves law firms from the largest law firms in the world down to Um, small, high-performing boutiques.
0: So it's a fascinating journey, obviously, and obviously you've learned a lot about grit and determination and uh, force of will, so out of that, one could necessarily discern that you are a you know, not, not unlike many women who are strong and capable, uh, you're a, a strong-willed person with uh, a clear view on right and wrong. Um, so that led to some, I guess, some self-examination at some point. And the only reason I say that is because uh, of your recent TED-style talk, uh, the sunny, the sunny shot, excuse me, the sunny side of shame. And uh, you and I talked about this before offline, but tell me how you thought about that, doing it, what gave rise to it and, uh, and how people have reacted to it. And what, what kind of surprised you about it? Uh,
1: yes, I, it was, I know exactly when I thought I was going to, when I, it sort of came to me that it was time to give it, it was Christmas 2018 and um, I was invited to give a speech in San Francisco to a business audience, largely an audience of lawyers, men and women and um, and the the speeches it was a part of a series, and the speeches that were given by great friends of mine in the indus- in the legal marketing industry were all business related speeches, and they were you know about self-motivation and self-branding and ha- you know these various things that that um that are i all i know all of them were excellent and all of them were well received having said that the series kicked off in december and by may when my speech was scheduled i determined that as i'm looking now ahead at christmas to may thinking well, nobody's going to want to hear any more of that. And what I, you know, what what I'm an expert in and what I talk about a lot are law firm websites and foundational best practices for websites and business development strategies and how to win more business and things like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, nobody's going to want to hear that. And I just had this feeling that um, storytelling and telling my personal story as, As the foundation for ultimately having a conversation, a really personal, authentic conversation with business professionals about what is really holding you back from your own feelings about success. Um, I thought there was an opportunity there. And so I just, wow, jumped in with both feet and I wasn't sure what I was getting into. And the interesting, as sort of an aside, the, the interesting part is I had never told my family my story ever. So I had to tell my brother, my parents are deceased. My, I had to tell my brother. Um, and we sat down at a really cool bar in, uh, in the middle of the afternoon over the Christmas holiday in Minnesota, small town, Minnesota. And, and I, and I told my story and I was, and we both Pride and, you know, he was loving and sweet. Um, but that was the first family member I had ever told. So that was a big deal that I had to get that out of the way first. And once I received a warm embrace about that, I thought, well, that's really what I needed. Because the whole crux of my story is that I grew up in a family of secret keepers and we just didn't tell.
0: So if you can share and you're you're comfortable what's what's the secret what happened
1: yeah so the secret and it's the first sentence in my my ted style talk on youtube um is that i was raped when i was four years old oh my god and and i and it was it was not a family member thank goodness um it was the son of a babysitter who was probably 11 or 12 at the time And I was staying at their house um, while my parents were away and I stayed at their house regularly and, um, and this one time, and I honestly, I honestly don't remember if it happened more than once, but I, I know the one, the first time it happened or potentially only time it happened, but I remember it so vividly, but for years I didn't, I didn't remember it. And, um, and I think because it happened and then I knew I couldn't go home and tell my parents because I knew they wouldn't understand. And again, I'm four years old, so I'm, I, am, I am now assessing my home life and determining it is not safe for me to go home and tell because there was this, um, I don't know, preponderance of secret keeping that was you know you that nobody talked about it but i just knew and i felt it and i just felt i would be blamed somehow i would be um ostracized ridiculed punished certainly punished i would have i felt i would have been punished probably for telling a lie they the the reaction probably would have been that my father would have thought i was telling a lie
0: so let's just hit the pause button there and figuratively and unpack what you just said. So you're a four-year-old. You have a trusted relationship with uh, friends of the family. You go into a situation where that trust is metaphorically uh, and physically violated. And at four, you conclude that by telling somebody you're going to get in trouble and bad things are going to happen to you. So therefore, you need to keep the secret. Exactly. So that means that before four, wittingly or unwittingly, the family culture was one that uh, there are some things we talk about and there are some things we just don't talk about. And uh, those lines are drawn um, in a way that only that family can discern.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And it's interesting until this very moment, I had never actually thought of, I mean, I've never really had a conversation about, okay, what happened before you were four, you know, before this incident? Um, I do remember, I mean, I was, it was sort of a corporal punishment family. My brother and I were, you know, beaten as children by our dad who, you know, did it out of love. And, um, and it was because we were misbehaving or we were, you know, telling, tell, we had both of us had vivid imaginations. And so I was a storyteller. I was a very much a storyteller as a kid. And so I was making up stories and that my dad kept saying it was a lie. You know, all those things are lies. So I would be punished for, um, for telling lies. And so the, I, that, I think that's the environment. That's what, what ultimately I was confronted with and thought, okay, well, that's, I don't want that. I don't want to be punished.
0: So to understand that better, uh, there's a range of, of uh, corporate punishment, corporal punishment. Um, and I grew up in a time when that was very, very permitted. So I you know, enjoyed the wrath of my parents uh, in a similar way. Although you used the term beaten as opposed to the term spanked or swatted or some other uh, term. Was it more aggressive than spanking or...
1: When we were little, it was probably spanking. But, uh, you know, when we were this, my last encounter, physical encounter with my dad was when I was in 10th grade. And that was an all out beating. And my brother, I remember when I was little, my brother had done something that he felt was completely inappropriate when Greg was probably in ninth grade. and, um, And he was beaten. And so it was you know there were there was bruising and there was I remember in tenth grade my he had pulled my hair so hard I was my hair was coming out in handfuls. So it yeah it was it was um that and I was so I was afraid of him my entire life and I think he had no sense of it. I think he just that's what parents do.
0: Well it's strange credulity that you could characterize this as an act of love. Um, so, but let me first and foremost say how sorry I am that you had to deal with that. No one should ever have to deal with that under any circumstances for any reason. Uh, and I'm, I'm just terribly sorry to hear that you had to endure that. Um, trying to circle back and it's not easy hearing stories like that, but trying to circle back to your story, uh, going back, you decided to, to film a TED talk, you gave the message at the, at the event, what happened? How, how was that received? And and what was the message, you know, that you could give in that environment?
1: The, the original speech in San Francisco um, was actually uh, a much longer speech. In fact, it actually was closer to an hour, maybe 45 minutes or so. I had audio and video segments of kind of that, that added some both color and um, shape to the story. Um, but the people in the audience started crying. So I, uh, and then we had cocktails afterwards. <laughs> so, so we, it was this reception it was in an, a law firm environment and but people were very interested in staying around and talking. And so the guests st- stood around in, in, in this San Francisco environment which was in person um, for two hours and we were all telling stories and people wanted to tell their own stories. And similarly, when I gave this speech in April at an, at a virtual conference, and it was much more of a Ted style format. So I pared it down to essentially 20, 20 minutes. um, I had, I had, so many friends and acquaintances people I've known for a long time professionally because it was this was again this was a professional environment not exclusively law firms but um, but professionals and people I've been you know friends with friends on Facebook or certainly LinkedIn contacts and things like that over the years reached out to me and we scheduled a Zoom discussion and they wanted to tell their stories. And so people I've known, and some people I've known very well, shared things that they've never told anyone else. And I, I believe what, what happened is that in me, they saw a strong woman, someone who's had a certain degree of success that they all had also had and that they enjoyed and, but they still had this story that they'd never shared with anybody. So your act,
0: of, your act of courage essentially, cause it took an, an immense amount of courage and that should not be understated at all. Um, just an immense amount of courage to go up and talk about this gave them permission essentially to share and say, hey, it's okay. It is possible. And one might argue it's more than possible, but it's possible to be both strong and vulnerable and to have had that vulnerability compromised by trusted people and uh, and, and talk about the horrors of that and the long-term implications of that. Was, it, was there any negative feedback you got?
1: No. And in today's world of um, you know, quick, um, quick run to judgment and um, moral indignation and all of these different feelings that people have so publicly today, I have not gotten any negative feedback at all. Not one comment at all that, I mean, even on YouTube, no down thumbs. <laughs> so it's like, you know, yay. For that, I, um, and, I, and I think if I did receive that, I would take it as someone who just wasn't ready to, to own their own story. Um, I think anyone who's, because who, my entire message is that there is an opportunity to step out of the deep end of shame and see the light of day. And that's where the sunny side of shame comes in but you have to own it and you have to own all of the bad that it, you associate with it and and just find a way to move through it. And generally, the way through it is just one step at a time.
0: So talk about that for a little bit. What do you, when you say you need to own the shame, that's a very, very big, enormous sentence with a lot of gravity kind of the size of Jupiter so tell me tell me what you mean by own the shame
1: well first first there is there has to be a recognition that that there is something that is holding you back and what i see a lot and have seen my entire career particularly working with lawyers high performing people high performing really high performing high potential Professionals is that many of them are unhappy uh, many of them aren't, which is great, but many are unhappy, and many are um, are sort of hindered or aren't as successful as they think they should be i i I have seen that a lot where they look kind of longingly at the rainmaker and their firm and say, well, you know, Todd is so great at that. Why can't, you know, why can't I be like that? And they assume, well, Todd's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. That must be the reason. And so they, they put sort of labels on themselves, which may or may not be true. And ultimately they start limiting limiting them themselves they start self editing in a way that is a highly unproductive and ultimately is a complete um, is sabotages their potential for success and they don't even know they're doing it because they i I call it a false self they that like I I was I mean I was I by anyone's standards I was successful but I felt like I wasn't deserving of the success or I felt like not because I didn't work hard because I completely did work hard but it was that underlying feeling of I'm just not quite good enough to have this level of a level of success I'm not and it's it's, link
0: link that link that back to shame and the events uh, when you were four how how does that correlate? why does that make you not worthy I
1: think because even though, because there was this underlying, I don't know what the word is, um, there, this underlying belief that certainly for years I had that belief. And then I logically no longer had it, but I think emotionally I still had it, that feeling of being dirty or feeling like I was imperfect and surely there must be something wrong with me if I, if somebody did that to me.
0: In other Um, words, maybe, maybe you weren't deserving of safety. You weren't deserving of respect. You weren't deserving of your own personal space and boundaries. And, and you also weren't deserving of the right to tell the story that you had been violated to even your parents. Is that kind of all part of this, of the makeup?
1: I think it is. And I think as it relates to boundaries, uh, the idea, the concept of boundaries is a, is a very interesting one because I felt like I had none, I had no boundaries. And, and I think that is not an uncommon feeling, um, that people grow up, people with any kind of a shame story or who grow up feeling like a misfit or feeling other um, the boundary system that seems so clear to some people and families, I just didn't. I just didn't have that, and and they were so. Consequently, I would always found myself, even professionally, found myself in settings where there was some someone or sort of an organizational morality that was coming closer than it should, was um, making advances in some way or trying to exert influence or power over or something like that. And, um, and, I, and I just didn't have a sense that I had any permission at all to challenge it. So, this so a, I sorry, found no, myself no. sort of, I found myself kind of um, dancing around it. You know, to you know to to just keep myself standing and keep myself you know doing my job and keeping relationships going and everything else. I just found, and again that that false self was very, you know, amoebic in kind of a way because it kept morphing from one, okay, I had to be this person here, but then I had to be this person over here and so there were it wasn't just one false self i was trying to keep track of there were more than one depending on what the you know what the boundary structure or lack of boundary structure was
0: so you almost had to be a psychological and emotional chameleon changing your colors depending upon the environment in which you were then existing so completely. i'm sort of borrowing on a metaphor there for you but um that th- this has two implications. Let me just see if I can recap if, if I, because I think this is really important. Uh, and I don't know, I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, it sounds to me like first thing you had to do is, is acknowledge this thing happened to you, uh, acknowledge and give yourself permission to say, hey, this wasn't my fault. Um, I had a right to safety, I was violated, and that person didn't have the right to do what they did. I had the right to tell family members. I and, and I guess the other side of the coin is I made an election. It may have been supported by a whole bunch of good reasons that you made the election, but I made the election to keep it a secret. Um, so, and, and then once you get that through, that then you can figure out how to. Uh, undo some of the implications and the manifestations of that psychology that have manifested in your own psychology many years later, that leads to two things. One is a question around how did you do that professionally? Meaning did did you find resources that could help you through that very, very challenging walk? And then secondly, how did that show up in your professional life? So start with, the resources you had to figure out how to obtain and and were they helpful and how did you go from there?
1: There were there were no conventional resources um in terms of, you know, even the mentor, you know, sort of professional mentor, mentee, that was, I grew up without that. So in my career, there I I I never had a, a traditional mentor but i did seek therapy um i i had two bad experiences with psychiatrists in colorado that um one that i was trying to i was it was under the auspices of of marital therapy with a former husband and um and neither was a good experience at all because they were both um friends of my husband's, or they were both, they, you know, they were very supportive of his point of view. So there was it was, it was not an equal playing field at all. Fortunately, um, I, I wasn't dissuaded from the idea of getting therapeutic treatment. And when I moved to Dallas, I, after, I don't know, a year or so, I ultimately, I was in a, in a very, very bad relationship. I couldn't seem to Get out of and I thought, okay, that's a a perfect catalyst. So I went and I saw the therapist, and it was kind of funny. My first that he and he was a referral from a friend. His name was Jim, Um, and I my first session walking into Jim again. I'm you know I'm very professional and I'm very composed, and I walked in and I and I said, okay, there are three things I want to deal with. I'm in this relationship I can't seem to get out of. I'm tired of the sexual abuse you know, being an issue. I finally want to be done with it. And I want to focus on my relationship with my dad. And he started laughing out loud. And I thought, well, you asshole, <laughs> you know what? And he, but he didn't do it in a, I mean, he almost did it in a way that suggested I mean, he was laughing at me and my composure and my, okay, you know, let's just get this done kind of thing. And um, and so he, he then said, I can help you get out of the relationship. The sexual abuse will never be over, uh, but I can help you intervene and tell me about your relationship with your mother. And it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so... I then said, okay, this is the guy. And he was the guy and I saw him for almost 10 years. So uh, I was really committed and it took that long. And, you know, I think people with therapy, anyone who's been through therapy says, yeah, therapy was great. I went for six months or, you know, and it's sort of, okay, we're done with that.
0: So the message there to those listening in the audience is, uh, you you think you have the problem diagnosed correctly and then all of a sudden something happens where another perspective comes in and you said, whoops, got that all wrong <laughs> yeah. uh, or I got it partially wrong. Um, but I guess the other message here to listeners is uh, you know, like many uh, professionals uh, and professional offerings, it's hard to find the one who actually can uh, help you. Um, ironically, I've had this challenge immensely in in uh, finding lawyers uh, who are who are capable. As I've talked to you before, I mean it's just uh, astonishing. Um, but it, it exists in, in every profession. But I, I, I think the other message is you can't give up. You got to keep trying. And fortunately, you had the resources to do that because uh, you had the you know you were obviously successful, but uh, you had the financial wherewithal to go. To go to it as well. There was another piece of this uh, that was the the second question around sexual harassment, and I, I, my sense is that you are dealing with a lot of that at the office. And um, there's something to me that's coming out around how uh, your journey, and I'm going to use a word that's hyper popularized popularized right now, but um, your journey led to a different form of conviction and authenticity in yourself that gave you new sources of strength to address, from a different perspective, the issue of sexual harassment. Now, I could have gotten all that wrong, uh, but let me just put that out there as a hypothesis. Is that is am I on target there or not?
1: I uh, I don't know I don't know if you are. I, I, I don't know if you're not. Um, it, I don't know that authenticity is um, I think authenticity is definitely a 21st century word, even though you know it certainly has been around for millennia probably. Um, but I think that the rise of social media and people, feeling comfortable sharing their stories or, again, sort of the personal branding that people are, are wanting to do to elevate themselves. I think they believe fundamentally that they are being authentic.
0: Well, and but the idea I... is that you're, you, can make, you can say, look, this is who I am and you're going to deal with me as I am Uh, And I'm going to be true to who I am, and you have to be uh, true to who you you can elect to be true to who who you are or not. But you're going to be uh, true in your dealings with me as I am.
1: I think that's right, and I think that I think what what a lot of a lot of what we see today is is a desire for visibility, and as opposed to healing. And I would say that. My goal all along was just to feel quote unquote normal and feel not like a misfit. And so it, it it comes from such a different place. I was never looking for visibility around it. In fact, which is largely why I didn't tell the story for all those years. And when and when the Me Too movement started. Really catching steam 2018, the Harvey Weinstein, I mean I'd been putting up with that my entire career in some of the most colossal ways, just just outrageous breaches of the professional environment that I that I starting at the March of dimes and you know through pretty much throughout every organization, and I just I was never gonna say anything about it. I needed my jobs. I was not going to let it get in my way. And I honestly think even though it was annoying and maddening and disappointing, I did not have the same level of outrage that we see today about it. And I still don't. And I don't know, that could be some I don't know, twisted something that is just wrong with me that I don't have that same level of outrage, but I think that it's, I, and I certainly don't rack it up to the boys will be boys either. I absolutely don't. I don't, I just think that there are so many things that go on in our lifetimes that in a, and certainly in a professional environment that we we are confronted with and that we have to deal with and we have to encounter and just move through. And if you make everyone, everything you encounter that's uncomfortable, a problem for you, then I, it's hard to make progress. So I may get lots and lots of backlash about that, but I, I, fe- I just feel that every person is going to deal with these things differently. Every woman will handle a sexual harassment encounter differently. And to suggest that there's only one way of getting through it is, I think, unfair to others who've gone through the same thing.
0: So I think the the idea is certainly, well, I don't want to say certainly. I will say for the record that sexual harassment should not be tolerated. Uh, I think each, every person, uh, and given that this happens more often than not to women, um, then I would say every woman has to make a decision on how she handles not tolerating it. Uh, But I think there's a question around uh, how do you get past this? And I want to, if I, if I may, uh, ask you about a particular story that you shared with me. Um, and I was, I was just aghast. But this, to me, is an example of of the story that you know you're allu- Some of the stories you're alluding to, but haven't quite come out and said. And I'd, if you can, please share the story about you know your role in, as a marketing director and putting together this this annual trip and the, the outcome after you put that on and what happened to me, it's just unbelievable.
1: That was an unbelievable story. And I uh, just, by way of clarification, my comments about sexual harassment really relates to, uh, you know, sexual inappropriate, not, not um, like harassment in this kind of story I'm going to tell, which, you know, I absolutely immediately went to the, to the managing partner in the firm and told them. So I was was the marketing director at a large law firm. And we, one of my responsibilities, my department's small, very small department's responsibilities was putting on an annual dove hunt. And since we just passed Labor Day in Texas, um, that is the opening weekend of dove season. And I was in... um, snyder texas and getting ready for this event getting ready for people to arrive and a carload of partners um, at the time had been playing golf all day arrived at the venue completely drunk and at about four o'clock and the first hunt was going to be at five o'clock and I- So, so
0: these, these are partners in the law firm. These are the big dogs, so were the rainmakers theoretically, the yeah. equity holders uh, of the firm. So theoretically the most responsible leaders of the firm show up blistered drunk, driving a car. Yes. So <laughs> you don't even pass go yes. on this one.
1: Right, And and they're carrying guns. Oh, that's that's always
0: a wise idea. It's (laughs) good to combine inebriation with with loaded weapons. That's always smart.
1: Yes, yes. So I suggested to them in the nicest, um, you know, Susie tour guide kind of way that, you know, perhaps they could sit this one out and just let everybody else. We had about 85 Clients, mostly clients, and a few other lawyers from the law firm participating. So, so you're,
0: you're a musician. We'll call these, you, you try to persuade them with dulcet tones.
1: With dulcet, my most dulcet tones, yes. And they, of course, had none of it. So I, I called the, uh, the administrative partner in the firm, and I told him, There's nothing you can do here. I'm just letting you know. I know we have insurance, but I'm just letting you know. I had this conversation with them. I'm concerned about this. We have 75 clients here and drunk partners with guns. And I'm just alerting you in advance. I I, pray that nothing happens. And the prayers worked because nothing happened. But Fast forward to now Tuesday after Labor Day back in the office, and I find that the administrative partner called in those partners and read them the riot act and said, Deborah told me that. So he completely threw me under the bus, probably unwittingly so, but I was under that bus nonetheless. And, um, and what ultimately happened is Mm -hmm. then anytime I would see any of those lawyers in the hallway from the youngest associate to the senior most partner, they would call me the C word under their breath as I'm walking by them. And so, and that went on for probably a week. And, um, and that was, it was, there were probably 10 or 15 of those lawyers. So that was a lot of day after day after day in the hallway, kind of, that I just, again, I just, you know, I just ignored it. But then one of the sort of ringleaders of this, uh, of the drunk gang um, came into my office screaming expletives and he was so angry at me and his, I mean, he was just screaming at me and he took this giant typical law firm club chair in my, that was on the other side of my desk and put it over his head. And it was so clear to me in that moment that he was going to throw it at me. And I, my office was in such a, my desk was in such a place. There was no way he could have misfired because I was, my chair was uh, my desk chair was actually at the point of where the wall came together. And So I just scooted around and ran out the door and he pivoted with this chair over his head and threw it after me as I am running out the door. And he completely broke the doorframe in my office,
0: which was glass. Uh,
1: No, it was it was it was wood and uh, probably mostly wood. Okay, but it broke the doorframe.
0: And what was what happened to him?
1: Nothing. Well, he, he certainly never had to apologize to me. I went to the managing partner and the administrative partner and they apologized profusely. They were horrified. Uh, But, you know, he wasn't fired or, and he never was forced to apologize to me.
0: So implicit in this idea is here on the one hand, you have these law firms who are your clients who are trying to uh, put out messages around that uh, marketing messages around who they are, what they want to do, how they're inclusive, etc. And they're putting that on their websites and you're that you're designing. And you're saying, "Hey, wait a minute, guys! You're you're still failing, and here's why. And so, if you really want to be successful, this is what you do. So, what did you tell them?
1: So, and that's, that, that's exactly the work I do. It is to dig deep and not use all of the language that every other law firm uses. And there is this default language that they've grown up with and that all the law firms use and they all want to be trusted advisors and they, um, they all focus on their client service, service and responsiveness and Um, We're very client-centered and we're very client-focused and all those things. And it's just blah, blah, blah noise to the buyer of legal services who's heard it all a million times before. And the buyers are looking for honesty. And I don't mean honesty in terms of I'm going to tell you the truth. They're looking for that emotional honesty that can cause them to feel so comfortable and you know, as a buyer of legal services to have an, they want an intimate relationship with their, their lawyer. They want, they want it to be filled with truth-telling and with trust in the, in in the, in the place where the advice is coming from, that it is, that it is so sort of perfect in its, um, in its, well, I'd, be happy, I'd be happy
0: with good advice and with professional competence. I'd, I'd stop there. But uh, and those that, are You
1: think that's table stakes, right? That's just table stakes.
0: One so things. I'm so it's, sorry. It's been, a, uh, it's been a lot harder to find than you'd imagine. But the issue then kind of correlates back to how do you really show up, especially as the workforce becomes more diverse? Uh, both internally and with regard to your clients, boards of directors are more diverse. Um, but if they're behaving like this yeah, on a regular basis, as they have with you and uh, your experience and your stories, how on earth, how on earth can they possibly ever retain good talent? Because as we know, the law schools are now populated with half or more than half are women. Um, then, how on earth is it possible for them to retain good, to, to hire and, and retain good talent or to retain client relationships with behind the scenes? Their, their conduct is so unimaginably brazen and horrific.
1: Well, I believe, and I and I haven't been inside as an employee in a law firm since nineteen ninety-eight. And I do believe that the last twenty years there's been an enormous progress. I also think there's, you know, there's there have been tragic stories. There's one story in particular, and I'll I'll answer your question, but one story in particular where a partner in a major global law firm. In one of their United Kingdom offices was um, accused of sexual harassment at a holiday party and and this was I think 2018-2019 time frame so the Me Too movement had come out and so there was there was more acceptance about having those conversations and law firms were taking those conversations. Now, if they weren't before, many of them certainly were before, but if they weren't before, we're definitely taking them seriously today. And women felt empowered to be able to actually say, OK, this guy was inappropriate at this holiday party. And he jumped off a cliff in Wales and killed himself. Oh, my gosh. So Matt, the management of the firm talked to him and he killed him and he literally jumped off a cliff and killed himself. And so whatever his, so there's this confluence for Now think of law firm leaders and how do you manage the law firm? You now have very, very, very open um, conversations about mental health. There are countless articles in the American Lawyer and National Law Journal and these other publications and certainly in the business media about the, the mental health crisis among, again, high, it's not ex- exclusive to lawyers, certainly high performing, high potential professionals. And then, so the delicacy around that, and then you've got the delicacy around, yeah, but this guy was inappropriate to me and them managing those conversations. So, so, you know, I, my heart goes out to the management of that law firm because because it was awful I mean both both stories were awful and um, and so what what law firm leaders today in in assessing talent what, they're, what, we, what we are seeing is this enormous contribution, enormous investment in financial and certainly in terms of other resources in diversity, equity, and inclusion and the intentions are all great, I think, by and large. The, what's happening is that the only way for them to feel like they're making progress is by measure, measuring numbers. Okay, they count faces, female faces, male faces, LGBTQ faces, people of color, people with disabilities, all those diverse spaces and they count them and they say, well, our numbers this year are better than last year. So what are you doing? But you're highlighting the differences and all of those, and women and all the women lawyers, all, I just had this conversation with a client of mine. Um, they don't wanna be viewed as women lawyers. They just wanna be viewed as lawyers. And the so, so the DEI, investments for coming from the top down. And that's a very big message. It, our commitment is from the top down. Well, I think it has to be from the bottom up where the storytelling can happen. And a woman who felt other, I mean, by anyone's standards, I don't look, other than the fact that I was a woman in business and in a largely white male dominated business 35 years ago. So that made me diverse back then but uh, but by you know today I'm not diverse in the least and but I still felt other or like a misfit my entire life very similarly to these people that we're now counting and we're and and the stories their their origin stories the where they came from what has hurt them in their lifetimes those are the stories that to to feel heard and to feel a part of an organization. I believe those are the stories that have to be told. And that's where the acceptance there, they will feel accepted if they feel they are accepted for who they really are, as opposed to being a, a number, uh, a minority face and, um, and, and i think and, and and that they are invited in not because they are a diverse person but they the the inclusion is around i get you i i get i get who you are now thank you for sharing that story
0: so we started our conversation today learning a little bit about your story that that and then that kind of evolved into a discussion around how your story helped you understand and address uh, things both personally and professionally. And then we've observed how uh, professionally uh, we still throughout all of industry have a long way to go to get to the right place. I'm wondering how do we change the dynamic? How do we change the discussion from a one where individual Groups of people, you know, any of the number you just went through, you rattled off, is changed from discussing that and, and quotas, if you will, to a different to- topic around how do we bound together? How do we come together and fight the commonly shared view that these things are bad? and that we need to unify our work in addressing the the elimination of the bad things that we're discussing, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's uh, exclusion for one reason or another, whether it's uh, any of a number of other issues. Um, How do we change the dialogue into one where we collectively are unified to fight against that problem and things like quotas and headcounts and uh, and other other metrics like that are going to be wildly unsatisfying in as a tool to address the commonly shared view of elimination of these societal ills
1: boy, if I could answer that um quickly, I could, you know, I'd be a multi, 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 multi millionaire. I, I I, think it's hard. And I think um, I had an interesting conversation with the former chair of an AMLA 100 firm recently, and um, which is one of the largest firms in the, you know, American Lawyer 100, AmLaw 100. And, and I, and we were talking about this and, and he doesn't, and he said, "They're so focused on money. You know, the the big firms, I smaller firms too, um, are so are so focused on profitability and making the the money that they make year after year, and doing what you just suggested, and or even what I suggested, which is." Find ways to develop a culture of storytelling, and that kind promoting that kind of authenticity and acceptance is going to be time consuming.
0: And let me offer you a different thought. I'm going to do something. uh, Hopefully, you'll consider a pleasant surprise. I'm going to suggest that your background, it uniquely qualifies you to help. And it's not because of the unfortunate experiences you've had to deal with, but it's because of your music background. Hmm. If, if you think about it, an orchestra works best when it's all working together. It is comprised of players of a bunch of different instruments. They all look and sound different. And yet they all play a role in contributing to an outcome called a composition or a song. And if, if there's any abrasion, if there's any fault, if there's any miscue or failed performance in that orchestra, the orchestra kind of screeches a little bit. Um, oftentimes the conductor throws a fit, but generally the, uh, the orchestra screeches a little bit. So isn't the analogy we're looking for that we wanna have the, the firm operate like an orchestra with everybody given the opportunity to find their chair, to play their flute or their instrument as the case may be, and to execute as flawlessly as possible uh, given the sheet music before them.
1: That is really interesting. And I think it's a really good analogy. And what strikes me is that to be a fine member of the orchestra, you have to be, you have to take enormous responsibility to be an extraordinary performer on your own. And so so there's a tremendous amount of personal responsibility and accountability that you have every single day on your own to then bring to the orchestra. So the screech, so at least, you know, if they're screeching, by golly, it's not going to be my screeching. And, um, and what's interesting in that environment, even the rehearsal environment, which I've, you know, had, I've probably certainly over a thousand hours of, of rehearsal time in my, you know, sort of real rehearsal time in my career. um, It's okay. You know, I, if Todd isn't, Todd is the trombone player and has a solo and you're not getting it, he's gonna call you out in front of the entire 100 piece orchestra. And he's gonna say, Todd, you've got to, you know, this, you're missing this, you're missing this. And there's, you know, loads of nuance typically to the kind of comments that are made and the and the expectations and all of us know we all expect Todd's going to get it because if Todd doesn't get it we're all going to be a little bit mad at Todd <laughs> and and that is the culture and it's the expectation and that's why we continue to have music programs and band directors and orchestra directors in schools, you know, public schools and private schools and in colleges and kids still go on and get these degrees just like I did because it's so clear what the accountability standards are and expectations are. And I think if that, and the goal, the goal is absolutely a shared goal. So in a law firm, for example, could we Take a big law firm and have a really truly have a shared goal. Have the chair of the firm willing to be in an sort of the orchestra environment. The way you know the way that Herbert uh, von Karian or something would lead the Berlin Philharmonic. Is there, is there that kind of a person who would actually be willing to lead that way? And frankly, and do they have a culture where I could, they could actually call out Todd and say, Todd, this is not working, or this is your, your behavior in this way is not conducive with what we want here. And if you don't ultimately get it right, you're, we're going to have to find
0: somebody else, somebody else.
1: else. Yeah. I think that would be extraordinary.
0: Well, I kind of, my view of this is it's all a system that we need to look at this as a system and employee systems thinking to it all. Uh, around a whole range of things but Deborah, I could talk to you for another two or three hours and I'm sure you don't have the time for me to do that so uh, thank you so much for for joining me today thank you so much for sharing your story again I'm grateful for your courage and your bravery to talk about this and I'm also grateful for the impact you're having uh, you know personally and professionally on your friends but also on the entirety of the industry thank you so much for being with me today
1: I appreciate it thanks Todd
0: Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.